0: We're in the book of Luke, and then we go to Acts. You know, of course, that Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke, also penned the book of Acts. It's really a two-volume set. And we start there at the very end of Luke in Luke chapter 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then to the book of Acts chapter 1. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Apostle Peter had to insist in his epistle as an apologetic that we have not followed cunningly devised fables, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Notice Peter said we've not followed cunningly devised fables, stories, myths, Things that were concocted and embellished in the second century, but rather, Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter and the apostles were eyewitnesses of the majesty of Christ in the moment. They were his contemporaries. John said that they looked upon him, they beheld him, they gazed upon him, they studied him, they handled him with their hands. They knew him to be the word of life. They had seen him in every circumstance of life. They had seen him transfigured. They had seen him crucified. They had seen him beaten and mocked, scourged and scorned. But now, they were seeing him alive from the dead. In this period of time, which we began talking about last week, which we call the post-resurrection, the period of time after the resurrection of Christ, before the ascension, a period of 40 days. During this period of time, Jesus was dwelling with his disciples. He was appearing to them. He was making sure, as the text said, that he convinced them by many infallible proofs that he was alive and it was in fact him they were seeing and that he was still in his resurrected, glorified, but very human body. In fact, in the text there in Acts where it said, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. The word is eating. Literally, it's the word salt. (laughs) While salting, seasoning, while eating and enjoying the the, the fare that they dined upon during that period. While he was having that kind of intimate fellowship with them, he told them to stay in Jerusalem and not to go back to Jerusalem Capernaum, not to go back to Galilee, not to go back to where they had come from, but to remain there in the holy city for things were to happen there. It was during this period of time that the disciples really understood the scriptures he had opened their eyes to see the scriptures he had showed them the whole canon of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings, the psalms he had showed them all through there, virtually on every page of every scroll there would be a witness of some sort to Christ. To that which the text said he began to do and to teach. It is the work of Christ, the miracles that he performed, the things that he did, the demonstrations that he gave them, feeding of 5,000, walking on the water, healing the various diseased and afflicted people, riding into Jerusalem upon that little white mule symbolizing the kingship of David had fallen to him. All the things that he did and all the things that he taught, his works and his words, The words of Jesus, all the teachings and the preaching, the Sermon on the Mount, all of the conversations he had had with the woman at the well, Nicodemus and countless others, all of these, they had witnessed it. They had seen it. And so now something was beginning to happen. In order to really understand what we are looking at here when we study in the uh, Christian Origins, We need to understand a little bit about what's taking place and we need to know something about our author. Our author is Luke. Luke's a physician. Luke is a Gentile. But Luke had become an associate of the Apostle Paul about halfway through Paul's second missionary journey. You know, if you look in the back of the Bible, you'll see your little maps back there and they show you the the first and second and third missionary journey of Paul and then his travels to Rome, how he circumambulated four provinces of the Eastern Roman Empire, how he transnavigated the Aegean Sea countless times from Corinth to Ephesus and all of the travels, all of that is known to us because of the meticulous research and writing of physician Luke. And he was an associate of Paul. He had spent time with Paul. He had been part of Paul's company, part of Paul's band that had traveled throughout this period of time. So we need to pay attention. Actually, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are two volumes, both written by Luke in sequence, and these two volumes carried us through the ministry of Christ, From the early narratives concerning the circumstances of his birth and his early ministry, all the way through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, ascension, and at the end of the gospel, it ends with the ascension, and it picks up in the book of Acts with that very same scene, the ascension of Christ, and follows through all the way through the ministries first of the nascent church in the city of Jerusalem. We'll see in a week or two that Jesus had said that's the way the gospel would progress. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. And that's the way the book of Acts flows. The first chapters are about ministry in Jerusalem with Peter and John and others Stephen then it goes to a wider ministry into Judea and into Samaria with the ministry of Peter in Samaria the ministry of Philip beginning to expand beyond that and then finally the book of Acts begins to flow in the second half emphasis upon the ministry of the apostle Paul and it takes us all the way to Rome and we leave Paul there in his own rented quarters under guard, awaiting trial before Caesar which he had appealed to Caesar because it was his right as a Roman citizen as he had been accused. And Luke was with Paul during most of those travels once you get into the second missionary journey which began with the Macedonian call. So you have your historical uh, framework. We need to know a little bit about his method. And in Luke chapter 1 The first few verses there, the first four verses, Luke gives us something of his methodology of how he put his material together. This was not a cunningly devised fable. This is accurate, observable, empirical, eyewitness testimony that Luke works with and records and leaves us. And then Luke moves into the second volume. Some have wondered why there were two volumes. I hate to sound so pedestrian, but (laughs) that's because that first volume just ran out of paper. That's right. The Gospel of Luke's the longest one, and you could only handle so much bulk in an ancient scroll. And Luke had maxed it out and literally had to pick up another scroll in order to have the rest of the story. But listen to what he says. He addresses a fellow by the name of Theophilus. He calls him Excellent Theophilus. There's a lot of discussion as to who Theophilus might have been. Some have said that he was uh, some official because of the title Excellent, although he does not call him that in the book of Acts when he addresses him. Some have supposed that this was a very common name and that this could have been just anyone in the empire. Some have proposed that Theophilus was the attorney that was representing Paul before Caesar and he needed to be brought up to speed on everything concerning the Nazarene faith up to that moment. And it is interesting because the book of Acts has a tremendous amount of speeches which are apologetic and speeches that explain things. Speeches from Stephen about the Old Testament interpretation in light of Christ in his person and work. Paul Uh, his uh, defense against the the, uh, Sanhedrin Paul's defense in his speeches in Mars Hill against the pagan religious community and then Paul's various speeches in his defense before Festus and others toward the end It, it has a legal kind of a forensic feel to it in that they're laying out the points that need to be made in Paul's defense but whatever the purpose initially and what whoever Theophilus was, something, well, it's just a general address because the word means beloved of God. And that could be just any one of us. Those who love the Lord and those who are loved by the Lord are the audience for this particular set of volumes. But he says, inasmuch, and by the way, in the, in the language, that is a very classical technical term it means insofar as and, and let me bring you up to speed as to what results from what I have just understood. It's a classical expression and it's never used anywhere else in the, in the Bible. But Luke demonstrates in this very first sentence here, which comprised four verses in our text, his mastery of classical Greek construction. Although he does not follow it, the rest of the way through his narrative of the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke because he speaks more in Hebraisms, more in the common Greek and other ways to communicate. It was Greek and it was the Greek world that Luke addresses, the Gentile world of the ancient day of the first century. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, we know there was at least one narrative that probably was already extant, and that was the Gospel of Mark, which contained the preaching of Peter. There may have been others, we don't know. We finally come down to the four canonical Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the four that were widely accepted and each one came out of a particular school in the, in the early church and they each came out of the ministries of a dominant apostle or group of apostles and there may have been more than that we don't know he says many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us it is things that have been accomplished and are still on the books as having happened. We're looking for an, an accurate historical record. Luke is concerned with two things. One, to get it right, to be accurate, precise and accurate and true to the things that actually happened in the life of Christ, and in the life of the early church. And then also to present it in an orderly manner, not necessarily chronological order, although he does follow chronological order for the most part, but it also has an orderliness to it in terms of dynamic and subject matter that the audience would be moved to. To compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. These were the people that Luke wanted to hear from not necessarily the writers of the original narratives that he refers to, although I'm sure he checked those thoroughly, but he wanted to talk to the eyewitnesses. He wanted it from those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministered of the word, have delivered them to us. He has received the paradosis, the tradition that which had been spoken, that which had been seen, those narrations of the things that Jesus said and did, as well as later on what the apostles said and did through the power of the Holy Spirit, those things are the subject of what he is concerned about. And it's interesting to know that Luke probably was in the best position of anybody we can think of among the New Testament cast of characters to write such a novel because he had The access, not only to all that accompanied the Apostle Paul, and including Mark was an associate of Paul early on, you remember, but he also had some of the earliest apostles in his group, men like Silas, who were there from the very early beginnings, even predated Paul in their ministry. Silas was extremely helpful to to Luke because he not only worked with Paul, but he also worked with Peter. In fact, he was Peter's amanuensis to write his letter. Luke knew these men. Not only that, toward the end of Paul's um, travels before he went to Rome, he went back to Jerusalem, you remember. And as he went back to Jerusalem to keep the festivals and to present an offering to the church there and also to spend some time in the temple with proper worship service and the giving of vows and it was this occasion that got Paul into a lot of trouble and Paul ended up being imprisoned in Jerusalem for a good long period of time and there's Luke stuck in Jerusalem well who's in Jerusalem everybody <laughs> probably the Virgin Mary Probably a number of people that would be able to give him the details. There were probably people who remembered the ministry of Zacharias and John the Baptist in his infancy and Elizabeth and on and on. These things we get out of the Gospel of Luke. These are details we don't have in the other Gospels and it's because Luke was able to sit there and listen to these people. Not only that, on his way there, he had stayed at one of the original disciples' home. I remember the name of Manson. He had stayed in his home And there had picked up an incredible amount of information from them. He had spent time with Philip, whose seven daughters prophesied. He had picked up a tremendous amount of information. And before he left the coast, Paul was imprisoned for two years at the seacoast town of Caesarea. So what's Luke doing? For two years, he's stuck in Caesarea with the apostle Paul in prison. What is he doing He's talking to all of those people who up and down the Mediterranean coast had been eyewitnesses of the ministry of Peter and of the other apostles. And he's putting together his work in the book of Acts. So he has the life and the teachings of Jesus and then the life and the teachings of the apostles in his his, uh, content here as he puts it all together. He said, they were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. They've been delivered to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past. Isn't that what you want in a good author? Somebody that spent some time and has followed all things closely? There's an attention to detail that perhaps only a man trained as a physician would give the due diligence to put together. And that's what Luke has done with his account. To write an orderly account for you. As we mentioned the order a moment ago. It's chronologically roughly, but not necessarily in every detail. Most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Whoever Theophilus was, he wasn't totally ignorant of the movement of the Nazarene carpenter. He had been taught. He knew certain things. Some have speculated that he might have been a baptismal candidate and was being tutored and being uh, brought up to speed on things. I don't know that there's much weight to that. But at least he knew some stuff Theophilus did. But now Luke is giving him An immense amount of ordered, technical, accurate, historical accounts delivered from the eyewitnesses. Don't we need that? Christianity is not a religion that starts once upon a time, it's a religion that starts in the beginning. Our faith is rooted in history. It was not one day in a land far away and long ago. It says in the year that Quirinius was governor, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Historical events ground our faith because Christ Christ, is a real historical person. Everything he said and everything he did in his flesh, in his humanity, is just as real as any other person that's ever walked upon the face of the earth. And those things that are surrounding him, what he said, what he did, all of those converts, I always wonder what happened to the people. Whatever happened to the blind man? Did he become a preacher? (laughs) What happened to that guy that was healed of leprosy that came back and thanked the Lord? You think he ever became a preacher? You think he had a story to tell? You think he had a gospel to preach? You think he had a message? What happened to all those people? What about the woman at the well? We know she turned into a preacher. Pardon me, Presbyterians, but she turned into one to proclaim the saving grace of God. And that's really what it's all about. Here and in the text we read earlier, it is the forgiveness of sins that is to be proclaimed to the world. And it's to be done so in the power of the believer's testimony. He testifies that which he's seen and heard, that which he knows. If God's not done anything in your life, don't tell anybody he has. Don't be a false witness. But if he has done something in your life, Tell everybody. I got carried away. Let me stop and find out where I am. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Oh, Theophilus knew a lot but he wanted to know more. More, more about Jesus. More of his saving grace. Tell me more. Tell me more about Jesus. And that was the heart of Theophilus and that's Our heart today, we want to know more and more and more about Christ. Who is this man of Galilee? What did he say? What did he do? What's he doing now? Where is he? What shall he do in history yet to come? What shall he do in all eternity? How do we relate to him? Christianity is not just a philosophy. It's plenty philosophical if you want to really analyze it. It's not just a psychology. It's plenty psychological if you want to look at it closely. But it's personal. It is about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done for sinful humanity. Well, let's just take one quick look then as he continues in Acts chapter 1. As Luke picks up his second volume, he refers to the first volume. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is that Jesus is still going to do and Jesus is still going to teach. Jesus is not through doing, Jesus is not through teaching. He will do that work through His Spirit. His Spirit will be the one that will bring all things to our remembrance. His Spirit is the one that will teach us and guide us in all truth. His Spirit is the one who will be in us and among us. In fact, Jesus gave the Spirit to the apostles before Pentecost. You remember that? In John chapter 20, we have the record of the Lord with them in the intimacy of that appearance that he breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Echoes from Genesis where God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. The Lord breathed on his disciples and he vivified and enlivened them saving grace it was the coming of the spirit that was in fulfillment of the great promises of the Old Testament with a dynamic demonstration as outlined by Joel and is prophesied by Ezekiel and Jeremiah it was the coming of the spirit in power and in manifestation upon the people that set forth the breathing the breathing of the spirit is the breathing out of the word of God the preaching of the gospel the spirit is always breathing out And he breathes out the gospel, and every breath of the Spirit and every word coming forth has something to do with Christ. He will testify of me, said Jesus. If you hear a lot about the Holy Spirit somewhere, and you don't hear a whole lot about Jesus Christ in that same place, you need to at least raise one eyebrow. And let one eye be a little jaundiced. Because when the true spirit of God is on a people and on a person and on a movement, it does nothing but glorify, magnify, a crucified, risen Savior. Now, Luke summarizes what he had said there in the, in the whole of um, the gospel, of all that Jesus began to do until the day when he was taken up. That's his ascension that Luke ends his gospel with. He had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He had presented himself alive after his sufferings by many proofs. We looked at that last week, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Isn't it interesting that the Spirit of God came at the end of a Sabbath of Sabbaths? Seven days times seven weeks, 49 days. And on the 50th day, on the glorious day, on the day of Pentecost, that's what the word means, the 50th day. The 50th in the scripture is the time of jubilee. It's the time of rejoicing. It's the time of lifting up. It's the time of inspiring. It's the time of victory. It's the time of moving out for God. and That's when the Spirit came on the 50th day. And he had told them that this is the promise from the Father. We're going to continue our studies this fall through the book of Acts under the general rubric of extend. Extending the gospel to a sinful humanity. Extending the kingdom of God, and extending in the sense of exerting ourselves, having some energy and some movement and some power, and we pray that this will be done by the Spirit of God in this congregation and in this church in the days and the weeks ahead. Unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. It must be the breath of the Spirit of God upon you and upon me and upon this church in order for us to proclaim that gospel of the forgiveness of sins. It's interesting that when Jesus said, receive ye the Holy Spirit, the very next words out of his mouth, according to John, was about the forgiveness of sins. And he talked about gospel preaching. If you preach the gospel of the forgiveness of sins, sins will be forgiven If you don't, if you stay silent, there's no gospel going forth. The gospel depends upon witnesses. The Lord told the people in Isaiah's day, you are my witnesses. What kind of witness are you? A reluctant witness, a bashful witness, a fearful witness, a false witness? A kind of witness to the truths of the gospel? Let me say one thing, dear Christian friend. If you don't know the details and the glorious and wonderful particulars of the faith, start learning them. Find yourself a good resource and begin to learn the truths and the doctrines of the faith we live in a world now where people don't even know anything about Christianity and what little bit they know is a prejudicial hostile attitude toward a set sometimes of myths and and, uh, misgivings we're going to have to know in whom we have believed we're going to have to become persuaded that he is able to keep us and to do that which he has said he will do. But he expects us to be witnesses of his majesty.